morning, church. That was a week, huh? Craziness. Um, I, I want to take a minute before we, we start the, the new series and just kind of speak to that moment for a second. Um, one of the things, if you ever read the Psalms, uh, the Psalms are sort of, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, it was their ancient prayer and worship book. So like we might have words on the screen, ancient Israel, they had the Psalms. What's interesting as you read the Psalms though, is have you ever noticed how David annotates what's happening in his life around the Psalms? So before they even begin, David will make a little note. So Psalm 18, right before the Psalm, it says this, for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And what's so interesting is there's this, Psalm 18 would have been part of the public expression of their worship, but David makes this little note. We're having this moment of worship because of how we've seen the Lord's deliverance. And what that tells me is it's not just the content of the Psalms that's important, but David says there's a way to respond in worship when we've seen and when we've experienced the provision, protection, and deliverance of the Lord. And so what I want to do before we dive into the series, I just want to pray for us to say, God, thank you for your provision and protection uh, in the storm this last week. And I know for many of you, you have property damage. You're maybe still without power. I've talked to some that still don't. And maybe you're feeling some anxiety and stress about that. And I just want to invite God's peace into the midst of that. So let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your presence. And God, we thank you for your protection and your provision. Yes, there were hard moments. Yes, there were, uh, there were some damage and some property loss. But Father, we thank you uh, for the ways that we saw you protect us and provide for us. We, we thank you for the ways that we saw your grace and maybe even Jesus some blessings in the midst of all of this. And Lord, we pray this morning for those who are nervous or maybe stressed about the financial realities of, of making uh, repairs to houses and businesses and maybe just the stress and the pressure that comes with that. But I pray, Jesus, this morning that we would trust that the God who brings us through the storm we the, the God who brings us through the cleanup from the storm. And so we've seen your provision. We declare our trust in your protection and provision that we have seen and will continue to see in the future. And so Father, where there is stress and anxiety, would you just bring right now in a divine uh, way, Lord, your peace. And may it even now, Lord, settle our spirits and calm our hearts. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to launch into a new series, and it's called God's Design for a Well-Lived Life. Now, I, I like the idea of, of living life in a way that's intentional, of living life. When you get to the end of it, you can look back and say, man, that was a life well-lived. But I think to flesh that out, there's a, for you and I a couple key questions. Number one, we have to define what does a well-lived life look like? Because there are all sorts of definitions for what a life well-lived might look like. And depending on your source, whether it's culture, whether it's biblical truth, whether it's a Christ follower or not, we're going to define what a well-lived life looks like in, in very different ways. The second question I want to wrestle with is, once we define what a well-lived life looks like, how do we actually live that out? How do we step into that? And so what we're going to do over the course of this series is look at Jesus' teachings throughout the Gospels and how Jesus calls us to live life in a way that is aligned with the biblical truth and the biblical word of God that allows us to say, here's what a well-lived life looks like. And I think a lot of how Jesus calls us to live uh, is, is countercultural. In some ways, it might even seem radical to the culture around us. But I hope in that way, as we flesh out over the next four or five weeks, what it looks like to live life well 
that we recognize that there's an opportunity for us to have impact and significance and to make a change in the lives of people around us as we live out radical gospel living. So um, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been lost on a road trip? Super fun feeling, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been lost on a road trip and not known you're lost for a time? That's a weird feeling, right? So uh, a few years ago, I had a, a wedding out west of Fort Pier, somewhere on a family centennial farm out in the middle of nowhere, trying to follow the directions on my phone. And so uh, Lauren and I are driving out there. It was a Friday afternoon. I've got to officiate the wedding on Saturday, rehearsal Friday night. So we're just kind of enjoying the day. I mean, it was beautiful, sunny, uh, light wind day in South Dakota, which is like that in itself is like the Lord provides, right? No wind. And so we're, we're just kind of soaking in the moment. We only had one child at the time. So car rides were still pleasant and uh, uh, no one was whining or complaining. So we're, we're just enjoying this drive. And there's somewhere, some of you probably know this, somewhere east of Pier, the road, I don't even remember what road we were taking. It curves north, but it also goes west. And we're driving and we go north when we should be going west, right? Only we don't know we're going north. We're just kind of driving and uh, we drive for about 35, 40 minutes out of the way. We still don't know we're lost. We're just enjoying the ride. We're just going along, having a good moment. And suddenly I look on my phone. I was like, you know, we should be getting to pier really soon. I look on my phone and the, you know, the little arrow travels north. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> we left in plenty of time. But here's the thing. When you go 40 minutes out of the way, you're actually 80 minutes out of the way, right? Because now we had to backtrack. And, and I have this really bad habit of in that moment going, well, this isn't my fault. So I tried to make it my wife's fault. Pro tip, don't do that. That doesn't go over well. Uh, suddenly, we're all not having a good time in a real way, right? I'm stressed because I've got to call the family and tell them, hey, you know, we're going to be late and I'm really sorry. And they've got people in from out of town. They were understanding, but I feel terrible. But, but here's the thing, right? There were, there were 40 minutes where we were traveling in the wrong direction. We were lost, but we didn't know we were lost. We were just having a good time. And suddenly, there was this moment of revelation, right? When somebody opened our eyes and we go, oh, this is not where we want to be. And listen, church, defining a well-lived life is important because for many of us, we are living life in a direction and we are going full bore pursuing certain things. And listen, some of us are lost and we don't even know we're lost. Some of us are spiritually misguided and misdirected, pursuing all sorts of things, leading us on a trajectory far from the heart of God, far from the words, ways, and wisdom of God. And what we need is a moment of revelation where Jesus opens our eyes and we go, this isn't the way that we need. We need to realign with the words, ways, and truth of scripture. And so as we define what a well-lived life looks like, what we're going to do is look at the teachings of Jesus to say, how do we stay on course with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus and live not according to a culturally defined well life, but a biblically delineated well life. So as we do that, we're going to look at um, the reality that at the core of it, a life well-lived is about relationship with Jesus, right? This is John 10, 10, 10. Uh, Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but he has come so that we might have life and have it to the full. Now, we could see that, uh, that idea that Jesus says, I've come, you might have life and have it to the full. And we immediately maybe translate that to, well, that means success. That means I'm going to have all of the things that I want. That's not what it means. Actually, I think Jesus has something deeper, richer, and more substantial in mind there. In John 10.10, 10, when Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, he means holistic abundance. And I think sometimes our tendency culturally is to go, if I achieve enough, accomplish enough, get the right things, meet enough milestones, then I've arrived, then I've lived life well. 
But I think Jesus has a more rich, full, and complete understanding of what a well-lived life looks like. Now, if you look at John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is to diminish life. That is to lead us to a place that is less than what God has for us. The question is, well, who would choose that? If I said, listen, I have this friend. He's a real shyster. He's going to lead you astray, but I want you to follow him. You'd be like, well, no way. Right? You, you read that passage and you go, well, I want life and I want life to the full. Here, here's the problem. The enemy is pretty crafty and he's actually a pretty good liar. And we see this right away. You look at the story of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin and temptation. And it says that the fruit that Eve ate and that Adam ate, it looked good and it was pleasing to the eye. Here's how the enemy works. He takes things that look good and are pleasing to the eye. And he says, this will bring you your ultimate fulfillment. Right? So it's not that things like achievement and accomplishment and and all of these things that we might chase, it's not that they're bad. They're just incomplete. And what the enemy wants us to do is he says, you want to know what a well-lived life looks like? Let me show you all of these things that could be yours. And that's where I think we often get astray. It's not with the downright evil things all the time. Sometimes it's it's with things that look good. They're just incomplete without the gospel. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to really flesh this out today as we look at the example of Jesus. Let me go ahead and read for you Luke chapter 4. This is where Jesus really begins his sort of public ministry in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, all this will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you were the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Interesting passage, isn't it? Where Jesus, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into a place of testing. Now, uh, let's put that picture up on screen of what maybe this desert sort of scenario looked like. It was probably, uh, whoop, can we do the picture first? Yeah, there we go. So imagine you spend 40 days in this environment. It's hot, it's dry, everything's dusty, everything hurts. Uh, You haven't eaten for 40 days, right? This this is an intense season of testing. And and this is likely, you know, a similar environment that Jesus would have been in. There's a little bit of like shrubby, you know, scrubby things, not a lot of trees. It's hard to find shade. You're exposed to the heat of the day. This was a sort of intense season of testing. And for 40 days, we're told he was in the desert being tested and tempted by the enemy. Now, I think to really understand this passage well, you have to understand the the full biblical, biblical context. To understand this moment in Luke's gospel well, you need to understand the Exodus story. 
Now, the Exodus story is the Old Testament, and it's this moment in Israel's history when they were in captivity in Egypt. They were forced into slavery. They were oppressed by the pharaohs of Egypt, which at the time was one of the most powerful economic and military forces in the world. And the people of Israel were forced to build uh, these massive cities for the pharaohs. And the people of Israel are crying out to God in their bondage and oppression, asking for freedom. Now, God raises up Moses, a leader, who brings the people of Israel, by God's grace, up out of Egypt, and he leads them towards the promised land. Now, the people of Israel, they they wander through the desert for 40 years. And it's, for them, this season of testing, this season of temptation, this season of trial. And what happens when you read the Exodus story is you find out the people of Israel didn't do this well. When you read the Exodus story, they complain, and they grumble, and they rebel, In other words, they're a lot like me, right? And maybe a lot like you. And we see over and over again, the people of Israel falling into into temptation, falling into a place of just grumbling and complaining against God. Now, what happens in Luke's gospel is Luke is retelling the Exodus story. But now he replaces the people of Israel with Jesus and he retells the story with, with the Savior at the center who in every way that Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. When you start to compare the two stories, for Israel, it was 40 years. For Jesus, it was 40 days. The, the, the people of Israel were led by the Lord in a pillar of fire and cloud into the desert. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Every time that Jesus quotes scripture in this passage, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, which is the law of Moses that he gave to the people of Israel. If you are a Jewish person in the first century hearing this, you go, oh, this is the Exodus story. But what Jesus does is everywhere Israel failed, he succeeds. And what Jesus is doing for them is he's modeling what the victory and overcoming power of the Messiah looks like. What if in every way that we have failed and fallen in temptation, what if there's a way to freedom? What if there's a way to victory? What if there's a way to experience the fullness of life that's so much more than what we know apart from Jesus? Now, what happens is as we walk through these temptations, as we look at what Jesus is tempted with and how he overcomes, what becomes clear for us is a picture of what a well-life, a well-lived, biblically defined life looks like. So let's walk through this. Verse three, Jesus is in the desert. And in verse three, it says this. It says, the devil said to him, if you were the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, you can imagine walking through the desert for 40 days, and now imagine a fresh loaf of bread is placed before you. Uh, My wife has just gotten into making sourdough bread. It is delicious. And often when I come home from work, there'll be a loaf of warm sourdough bread. And you you guys, it's, it's bad. I can put down a half a loaf in a sitting. Not even trying, right? Like I cut a couple slices and I'm like, oh no, it's half gone, right? Uh, and so I have to now ask permission, is this loaf for us? Or are we giving it away? I'll text her sometimes because I've eaten many loaves that were intended to be given away because it's so good, right? Now, imagine you've been in the desert for 40 days. You haven't eaten and you could have a loaf of fresh bread with melted honey butter. And it's just delicious. Like that could be yours and you're starving and you're hungry. And it's like, ah, that's there. And, and so Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. The enemy comes to him and he says, this stone, right? The ordinary stone. You're the son of God. Why don't, why don't you just prove it? Just tell this stone to become, Jesus, this is an easy thing for you. Now, here's the thing. I think what the enemy is doing is he's tempting Jesus to use his power and authority for his own purposes. What he's saying is, don't worry about the will of the father. Don't worry about what you're sent here to do. Serve yourself. 
So we're going to put up this uh, chart as we kind of fill this out together. And I want us to notice this first temptation. And, and I think for us, this is a cultural temptation for you and I as well. The temptation is use your life to serve yourself. Use your life and put you at the center of the universe. Do what makes you happy. Live your own truth, right? These are all cultural messages. Do what you want. Have life your own way. But you and I were not designed and created to be at the center of the universe. Life is not about serving myself, right? And this is precisely why Jesus pushes back on this idea. And he, he quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, it's not, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, if you hop over to Deuteronomy chapter eight and you read verse three, the end of that verse, he says, it's not good to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Right? That's, that's the full context of that Deuteronomy 8 passage. And what we see, church, is you and I are not designed and created to serve ourselves, our own ends, our own means, our own purposes. I think we are designed and created to live life aligned with God's purpose for us. Right? That's the truth. And I think the action step for you and I is to root your life in the word and the truth of God. And, and Jesus quotes this from Deuteronomy. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, on his, on his wisdom, on his teaching. And I think, church, if we're going to resist this message of serve yourself, do life your own way, it is imperative that we are rooted in the words and the ways and the the wisdom of truth in Scripture. And that that becomes, uh, this becomes for us a defining source of what a well-lived life looks like. Because what happens is when you live life for yourself, pretty soon you start to lose all sense of purpose. And pretty soon you start to see other people only as helpful to the extent that they serve your own needs. So as soon as we disagree with someone or as soon as we encounter conflict or as soon as we encounter someone who's not serving our purposes, we get angry and frustrated and move on. When God has called us to something so much deeper, it's to live life aligned with God's purpose for your life. So think about Monday morning when you wake up and step into work. There's a question before us. Uh, am I in this for me or is there something significant that God has called me to do in my workplace, in my home, in my neighborhood, in my community? Let's continue. The next temptation is this in verse five. It says, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. Now, here's the thing. I told you the enemy's a good liar, Right? What a good promise. Jesus, look at all, in an instant, he saw all the kingdoms. He goes, Jesus, all this will be yours. Now, the best kind of promise to give is one that you don't have the authority to fulfill, right? I could tell my children, when you graduate high school, I'm going to give you each a million dollars. Problem is, that's not going to happen, right? I can tell them that, but the enemy doesn't have the authority to give Jesus all these kingdoms, right? It's, it's a bold-faced lie. And, and if Jesus were to actually bow down and worship, I mean, that would rip apart the cosmos. It can't even happen. It's not possible, right? But if Jesus were to do that, what he would be doing is telling the devil anyway that he has authority and power and submission. I mean, the whole thing would be turned upside down. It's a bold-faced lie. But here's how the enemy works. He promises you things that you think will fulfill that in reality can never bring fulfillment. So I think the temptation here for us is to pursue things like power, influence, and success. I mean, he shows Jesus all these kingdoms. He goes, man, their, their splendor, their authority, all yours. It'll be all yours, Jesus. And I think for some of us, we are driven by a similar pursuit of, I want power, I want splendor, I want success. I want people to approve of me and think well of me. And we sometimes spend our whole life in bondage, chasing the next promotion, the next pay raise, the next approval of somebody that we don't even know that well. And we live life pursuing this. 
And what Jesus does is, again, he quotes Deuteronomy and he says, no, 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 he says, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The truth here, church, is this. You and I were created to live a life of significance and spiritual impact. And sometimes what we do is we conflate success with significance. The two were not synonymous. Significance is about as you align yourself with God's purpose for your life, you have an opportunity now to have spiritual impact in the life of others, to influence people around you. You're not to just go through life getting all the things that you want for you, racking up accomplishments. No, you are to be aligned with the purpose of God to go and make disciples, to go and influence the hearts and lives of other people. And we settle for success when God says, I want you to have significance and impact and influence on a spiritual level in the lives, not only just of yourself, but of the people around you. The action I think we're called to in this is a life oriented toward worship of God and service of him. And and church, there's something about worship rightly ordered that keeps us focused and centered on God's plan and purpose for our lives. I think for some of us, we have worshiped at the altar of success and power and influence and acceptance for far too long. And here's the thing. Who or what you worship shapes your character. You start to become like the very things that you worship. This is why worship is such a big deal. This is why uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me is one of the Ten Commandments because worship is formative and transformative. And so Jesus says, no, 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 it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I want us to raise this question and just wrestle with it. What does worship rightly directed toward God, how would that change how we approach work and family and friendships and relationships? How would it change how we look at our careers? How would it change how we look at our five-year goal, 10-year goal for our own lives? Next, there's this uh, temptation, verse nine. It says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So imagine like you're up on the steeple here, right? And he says, If you are the son of God, right? He's still saying, prove yourself, Jesus. He goes, just jump. Throw yourself off. I mean, and and now he's he's cunning. He quotes scripture back at Jesus. Do you notice this? He quotes from the Psalms. And he goes, well, you know, Jesus, he will command his angels concerning. You're not even going to strike your foot on a stone. Now, Jesus quotes back at him from Deuteronomy. He says, it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, here's the question. What, What does Jesus mean by don't put the Lord your God to the test? Well, if you jump back to the Deuteronomy passage, uh, Moses tells the people of Israel, he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah and Meribah. Now, Massah and Meribah was this moment in Exodus 17 where the people of Israel, as they were coming out of Egypt, they experienced all this stuff, right? In Exodus 14, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Y'all, they literally saw the ocean part in front of them and they walked through on, on dry land. It wasn't just swampy, Right? They walked through on dry ground. Then as they got through, the chariots of Egypt came after them and God closed the Red Sea and God in his own strength conquered the army of Egypt, the most powerful military force in the world. God's like, watch this, they're done. Boop, gone. After that, they crossed the Red Sea. God provided manna, God provided quail. And then the people get to Massa and Meribah. They're in the desert in, in the Sinai Peninsula and they run out of water. Now, you've seen God provide manna. You've seen God provide quail. You've seen God defeat an army. You've watched God uh, divide the Red Sea. You would think that they would bow down and be like, God, we're excited to see your provision. If you read Exodus 17, verse seven, the people of Israel go, Ugh, God, are you even here? And in Exodus 17, 7, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa and Meribah when you asked, is the Lord among us or not? 
To put the Lord your God to the test means that in every situation you were saying, God, prove it. Prove your provision. Prove your protection. God, are you even here? To put the Lord your God to the test is to doubt his presence, provision, and protection for you. And the people of Israel, they saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet they still doubted God's presence when they ran out of water. And for some of us, church, we go through life, you have experienced God's provision and protection in a hundred ways that we take for granted. And when we encounter a season of difficulty, we often throw up our hands just like the people of Israel and go, God, are you even here? Do you even care? Right? And the reality is that we are called not to a place of doubting, but to a place of surrender in trust to God's plan and purpose for his people. We are called to live a life in which we walk forward in faith. But for so many of us, we get stuck in that place of doubting God's provision. And right, and, and what I want to do, like as, as we look at this chart, I want us to be, get a sense of, of the contrast of the life that we're called to. Right, because this, this, this uh, narrative of Jesus being tempted in the desert is in some ways metaphorical of many of the big temptations that we face. And our, our, I think our culture would want to tell us, serve yourself, pursue power and success. We're not really sure if God's there, right? That would be a cultural way. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. Surrender your life to God's purpose. You are called to a life of significance and spiritual impact and surrender in trust to God's plan, purpose, and priorities for your life. And this is a radical sort of reorientation of how we do life. Not living life for ourselves, but saying, God, all I have, I'm surrendering to you. I want to see your plan, purpose, and priority for my life. Now, here's this question, right? If that is the truth in action, if that is a sort of definition of a a life well-lived, the question is, how do we do that? And and I think for some of us, we've gotten trapped into a sort of telling of the gospel that's not actually good news. We've gotten trapped into a telling of the gospel that says, okay, now you got to try really hard to go do the truth in action things. Try really hard, put your nose to it, you can do it. This, This is not a pull yourselves up by your bootstraps thing. Right? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and he empowers us and graces us to live out a life of faith in which we trust God's purpose, in which we experience his transformative power in us so that we can spiritually impact others. It's the grace of God that empowers us to walk forward in trust. So now as we continue in Luke 14, we move now from a definition of what a well-lived life looks like to Jesus' invitation to actually step into this life. Luke 14, or Luke 4, excuse me, verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up the scroll, verse 20, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So now Jesus stands up in the synagogue. He reads the passage that he reads from is Isaiah 61. And Isaiah was a prophet ministering to Israel in a season again of their uh, history where they had faced incredible challenges. They, they faced economic and political threats. They faced uh, threats from the enemies around them. They again had experienced captivity and oppression. And so the people of Israel during the time of Isaiah are people whose hope has been crushed. 
And Isaiah 61 is a prophecy that is messianic, meaning it is describing the work of the Lord's anointed one who will come to bring freedom. Now, what Jesus does is he makes an incredibly bold claim, right? Imagine being in church like this on a Sunday morning and somebody got up, walked on stage, read that passage and said, oh, that's about me. We'd be like, okay, um, what do we do now? We got to get this person some help. Right? But this, this was radical. I mean, Jesus stood up in this synagogue, which the word synagogue means to gather. This was like their local church service. He stood up there. He reads that passage and he says, by the way, I'm the Messiah. The, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's the Greek word for anointed one or Messiah. It means Jesus is the one on whom the spirit of the Lord has anointed him to fulfill all these prophecies about Isaiah. And so not only does Jesus make this bold claim that he's the anointed one, but now he begins proclaiming, here's what I've come to do. And so Jesus talks about bringing good news to the poor. Now, when Jesus talks about bringing good news to the poor, this isn't just economic. That Isaiah 61 passage, if you read the whole chapter, he talks about the nation of Israel and how their cities have been devastated, how their their cities lie in ruin. But he also talks about, Isaiah does, that the Lord is going to renew those places. He's going to rebuild them. And this idea of poor is those who are poor in spirit. This idea of poor is those whose hope has been crushed. This is a people who are looking at the future and going, there's no way forward. And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim to you the good news that where you see no hope, where you see devastation and destruction emotionally and spiritually and relationally, I have come to provide a way through to proclaim this new thing of redemption and reconciliation that Jesus wants to do among his people. He he talks about bringing freedom from the prisoners and the oppressed. And what we see, church, is that Jesus comes and proclaims that the things that we are in bondage to, the things that you find oppressing you, Jesus can bring freedom from. And and I think this is in a couple big ways. I think Jesus brings freedom from addictions. I think he also brings freedom from attitudes and dispositions. So in very tangible ways, there are addictions to whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography, whether it's prescription drugs, whether it's food. Right? Those are all things that I think sometimes we use to sort of medicate ourselves in ways that are unhealthy. Jesus, I think, in his grace, could bring freedom from those things. For others of us, though, it's attitudes and dispositions. Maybe you find yourself always uh, functioning out of cynicism. You're always looking, what's the catch? You're always, what are they out for? And you approach life with sort of a bitterness and anger, a cynicism. Maybe you're in bondage to insecurity and you step into a room and immediately you think, how are they judging me? What are they thinking? What are they saying about me? Maybe you live life in bondage to acceptance and approval. You want to measure up. You want people to speak well of you. And you live life trying to serve others' sort of perceptions of yourself. And you find yourself in bondage to all of these sort of things, these attitudes, dispositions, and addictions. And Jesus says, those are not what you were meant to live in. That's the stealing, killing, and destroying of the enemy. You were meant for the fullness of life. So step out of those things. And church, for some of us, we're choosing ways of bondage when Jesus is offering us freedom. When you read the Exodus story, numerous times the people of Israel, when they encounter challenge, they look back at Egypt, which was a place of slavery, and they'll say things like, oh, remember when we had soup and we had garlic and leeks? Let's go back to Egypt. Church, what they're saying is bondage feels comfortable. Let's choose oppression. This church, this is a warning for us. Some of us, our places of bondage and dysfunction have become so normal, they feel safe. 
And for some of us, we're choosing bondage and oppression to addiction and attitudes and anger and bitterness and resentment and cynicism and acceptance and approval and insecurity because that's what we know and we're afraid of the hard work of healing and wholeness. And Jesus says, I'm coming to bring freedom. And what I want to encourage us is to offer those things in surrender and sacrifice to him. Jesus likewise says in this passage that he came to bring recovery of sight to the blind. For some of us, just like my story of driving to the wedding, some of us took a wrong turn in life a long time ago. And we don't even know that we're lost. But I think God is trying to get our attention and he wants to open our eyes and help us see things with a new spiritual reality to make a course correction, to live life well, aligned with his words, ways, and wisdom. And for some of us, that moment of revelation that we recognize we're lost is scary because maybe it means backtracking, maybe it means reconciliation, maybe it means the hard work of sacrificing and surrendering things to Jesus to experience his, whole, his healing, wholeness, and restoration, and we're scared of that. But it's this beautiful thing that Jesus says, I want you to experience the fullness of life. Come to me. Let me open your eyes that you can finally and truly see for real. And what we have here, church, is Jesus' invitation and empowering to to not only define for us what a well-lived life looks like, now Jesus says, I'm going to empower you to actually step into this life well-lived. And the beauty of this, church, is that Jesus frees us from sin, yes, but he also frees us for life in him. It's not just that you're set free from some things, you're set free into new things to experience the power and the presence of God in in our life, to experience what it is to step into your family situation, your workplace and go, I wanna have spiritual significance and impact on all of these people where there's dysfunction and brokenness and woundedness in the world. We need redeemed people to stand in the gap, to move into those places and to bring the redemptive, transformative power of the gospel there. Too many of us are lamenting the very places God has called us to transform in the power of the spirit. If you work in a dysfunctional work environment, if you have a dysfunctional family, It is no accident that you're there and have experienced the redemption of God. Now bring it to bear. You were called to have spiritual significance there. Too many of us are asking to be free from the very place that God has called us to serve. And Jesus has set us free just for that. To experience, yes, the fullness in our own life, but now to step in and see the redemptive power of the gospel unleashed in those places too. And the beauty of this church is, let me, let me summarize it. I think it's simple, right? This is not complicated. If I were going to summarize the life we'll live, it's this simple life of love for God. And, and Pastor Steve talked about this last week in 1 John 5, 3, right? 1 John 5, 3 says this. It says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Right? We look at scripture and go, oh, that feels like a burdensome way to live. That's the enemy. The enemy wants to describe scripture as burdensome. This is freedom. Life in Jesus is freedom. And and John says there, he goes, it's this simple. Live out a life of love for God. Walk in conformity to his ways. And his ways are not burdensome. Walk in conformity to the life-giving ways of Jesus. I think secondly, in summary, it's this. It's about a life of sacrifice, not self-sufficiency. And what I mean by that is it's a life of saying, Jesus, all I have is yours. Too many of us are trying to do it independently. We're trying to be enough. We're trying to measure up. We're trying to be self-sufficient. And God never asked us to be self-sufficient. He called us to be Holy Spirit reliant. So here's the challenge, church. 
Will we surrender fully into faith, into life, into relationship with Jesus? And part of what this means is those places of brokenness in you, will you open those up to the spirit? And listen, for some of us, we're afraid to, if I surrender this relationship, is God going to ask me to reconcile that? If I surrender this place of challenge and dysfunction, is God going to invite me into wholeness? Yes. This sometimes means we step into doing the hard work alongside the spirit of moving things out of our life that don't align with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. But church, this matters because the enemy, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants us to hang on to places of bondage and oppression and blindness when Jesus invites us into true vision and freedom. Would you pray with me this morning? Holy Spirit, Father, Son, we are uh, humbled to be in your presence this morning. And Lord, we see in the teachings of scripture that you are a savior who invites us into freedom and into healing and into wholeness. And we look, Jesus, where you read Isaiah 61 and you proclaim that you have come to bring freedom for those who are oppressed and bring sight to the blind and to release from captivity those who are in bondage. And Lord, I pray for us this morning that in our places of bondage, Lord, give us the courage, empower us by your grace and in the movement of your spirit to surrender and to release those things for you. And so Lord, right now, I pray that where there is bondage to addiction, Lord, would you bring freedom? Where there is bondage to attitudes and dispositions, whether it's bitterness or anger or uh, uh, approval of people or insecurity securities, Lord, whatever they are, Lord, right now, bring freedom from those things that we might experience, not the death and destruction of the enemy, but we might experience the true life that you call us into, that we can experience the fullness and abundance of life in you, Jesus. Lord, open our eyes where we are blind, that we can see your truth, that we can see your grace, that we can see your power and protection and provision where it's been there all along. And Father, in the moments where we have doubted your presence, Lord, forgive us and give us eyes to see where it's been there all along. Lord, give us courage to trust and to just let ourselves go recklessly and relentlessly into your plan, purpose, and priority for us. Father, we are humbled this morning as we think about the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, and the hope and freedom that means for us, Lord. We thank you, and we are humbled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.